0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well,
2: there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Here's a fun fact about the ITMFa account on Instagram. You know we have one, right? And you're all following ITMFA Graham on Instagram, aren't you? Well, if you're not, please do. We tag the White House as the location for every photo we post at ITMFA Graham on Instagram or repost those photos since the whole account is pics that other people posted to their own Instagram accounts wearing their ITMFA t-shirts, hats, buttons, lapel pins, drinking out of their ITMFA mugs. And we put them all on ITMFA Gram, We regram them at our account and we tag the White House so that anybody who searches the White House on Instagram gets hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands now of pictures of people wearing their ITMFA t-shirts. And maybe they'll think, what's ITMFA? And then they'll Google it and they'll know and their heads will explode if they are supporters of Donald Trump. And if they're not supporters of Donald Trump, maybe they'll go get some ITMFA merch of their own. But Scott Zumwalt, S. Zumwalt on Instagram, may have taken the ultimate ITMFA pick last week. He posted a pick wearing his black and very comfy ITMFA T-shirt in the actual motherfucking White House and posted it to his Instagram account. Go look it up. We also reposted it at ITMFA Graham on Instagram. ITMFA in the house, in the White House. So thank you, Scott. And now a little more news about ITMFA. Impeach the motherfucker already. Earlier this year in April, we donated $100,000 split between three great organizations that we're supporting here at the Lovecast, the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. And I am pleased to announce that we are making our second $100,000 donation this week. Checks for $33,333.33 are going to Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, and a check for $33,333.34 is going to the International Refugee Assistance Project. ITMFA, again, stands for Impeach the Motherfucker Already. And we announced the ITMFA campaign here on The Lovecast First. So a big thank you to all of our listeners who bought T-shirts and buttons, spread the word on social media, and have helped us raise now $200,000 for these three great organizations, orgs that are fighting the Trump agenda. Just this week, Trump announced that he is making it harder for women to access birth control, rolling back Obamacare regulations about making birth control accessible to women through their healthcare programs, allowing employers to deny women access to birth control because really you want your employer making those decisions for you about your reproductive health and fuck Donald Trump and we are really happy in the wake of this bullshit that we are making another donation, a big one to all three of these orgs, fighting Trump's odious anti-everybody agenda. We want to donate another hundred grand to these organizations before the end of the year, and you can help us get there by sharing itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com with your friends on your social media accounts. You can also help by, by ordering buttons, t shirt, lapel pin, mug at itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com. We now also have tank tops. One last note, for the next seven days, all ITMFA proceeds are going to go to the Hispanic Federation's account, their campaign to help people of Puerto Rico recover and rebuild from the destruction of Hurricane Maria and the misadministration of the Trump motherfuckers. So next seven days, if you've been thinking about buying some ITMFA gear, right now buy that gear and we'll make a donation to the Hispanic Federation for Puerto Rico Relief. After those seven days are up, we're going to go back to raising money for these three great orgs that we've been supporting for years and now supporting with ITMFA, Planned Parenthood International Refugee Assistance Project, and the ACLU. Once again, go to ITMFA.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com to get the gear. And be sure to post pictures to your own Instagram account of you wearing your ITMFA t-shirt or tank or button, drinking out of your mug, wearing your ITMFA hat, and we will reshare it at ITMFA.org. Graham. And finally, a big thank you to Brian and Jesse and Scott and Ross and everybody else who's been helping out with ITMFA. They're the reason why it's been such a success, and we've been able to make these two large donations to these three great orgs. All right, coming up on today's Savage Lovecast, lots of your Q, a lot of my A. On the micro and magnum editions of Savage Lovecast, director Angela Robinson is here to talk about her new film, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women her new biopic about the man and the women behind Wonder Woman. And on the Magnum, Mistress Matisse joins us to talk about a sad case where someone appears to be doing sex work under duress. All of that coming up on today's show.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm a married straight woman from the Midwest and a huge fan of your show. I have a question about curiosity versus inappropriate behavior. So my husband's ex has recently been getting in touch with her by curious side and we couldn't be happier for her. However, it now appears that she may be verging on the realm of inappropriate underage infatuation. Uh, Let it be noted that she has a family history of mental disorders from both sides and even has one family member serving time in prison for soliciting minors, and possessing child pornography. What I have found is that she has been following social media accounts that include photos of young women and underage teen girls kissing and making out. Some of these photos include nudity, but nothing so graphic that one would get kicked off of the typical social media site. I must also include that this ex is the mother of my two stepchildren, the oldest of which is 16 years old and a girl. I'm torn because I'm certain that if my husband were following these accounts of girls making out who were his daughter's age and younger, that he would be basically considered a creepy perv and would be crossing a line. But the fact that this ex is a woman looking at these things seems to have less of a social shock. But I find it just as disturbing. Am I making something out of nothing? Or has she indeed crossed a line? If the line has been crossed, what action should be taken?
2: Your husband's ex-wife is not in possession of child pornography, so far as you know. You are taking legal, legit online social media posts of a sexual nature and rounding those up to kitty porn because you know her to be following, I suppose, on Instagram a lot of young people, even perhaps some young women uh, or late stage girls who are posting flash and kissing and rolling around to attract attention to themselves. I'm curious why you're investigator clue sewing your husband's ex-wife's Instagram account and figuring out who she's following and why. Yeah, it's a little squicky. It's squicky that she is following people who are young enough to be her daughter's. Donald Trump is married to a woman who is young enough to be his daughter. There are plenty of people out there who are less odious than Donald Trump who are in relationships with people who are young enough to be their children. It doesn't follow, except in perhaps Donald Trump's case, that someone who's dating someone young enough to be their kid would want to fuck their kids. The incest taboo prevents people who are generally attracted to a certain type or a certain age range from being attracted to their kids if their kids happen to fall into that general type age range. So I just don't think that that's a fair leap you're taking there because she's attracted to young women and because her daughters are young women, she is going to fuck her daughters. I don't think that's fair. You could, if you wanted to, let her know that when she likes or follows someone on Instagram, that's something other people can see her doing. And it's not hard to see what someone is doing. You can go to someone's Instagram account and see who they follow and see who they like. And and she may not be aware of that. She may be inept at this social media thing and may not know that she's outing herself to other nosy adults in the periphery of her life for the creeper that she is. But I don't think creeping on young, attractive people at this distance, at this remove, appreciating their photographs, appreciating their youth, and vitality. I don't think that you can leap from there to she's going to fuck her daughters or she's going to rape an underage child or she's in possession of child pornography. And I don't think it's necessarily relevant that there's a history of mental illness in her family. Mental illness hasn't been shown to be a causation of child rape and that there's a a relative, however distant it was, I don't remember, who got in trouble for inappropriate or illegal activities online. It doesn't follow necessarily that she is any likelier to possess child pornography or solicit a minor. But you could give her a heads up, but then you're going to be outing yourself as the ex-husband's new wife who's policing the ex-wife's social media accounts for signs of inappropriate behavior. If you have a friendly relationship with her and you want a friend to friend, let her know that she's being a little inept on social media and other people can see what she's liking and – that's going to creep other people out. You can give her that heads up, but you risk making yourself look like a creep too.
4: Hi, Dan. Quick question. You say that oral sex should come standard on all models and refraining from oral sex is perfectly good grounds to DTMFA. What about kissing? Uh, Not just a quick peck, uh, not just very brief kissing, but... Sustained, long kissing and making out. Uh, should this be a deal breaker for your partner in a long-term relationship, particularly if it has been there before and then goes away?
2: I sometimes get in trouble for my comments about oral sex, which... Where oral sex comes standard, any model that arrives without it should be returned immediately to the lot, which I said to a guy who wrote me in Savage Love about his girlfriend who wasn't into oral. And that gets passed around on Tumblr a little bit. I also, in the very same column, very next letter, said the same thing to a woman whose boyfriend didn't want to perform oral. I do think oral should come standard. We have a reasonable expectation these days that oral comes standard. And in my opinion, any model or in my life, any model that arrived without oral would be returned immediately to the lot. But that was just a glib little joke. There are people out there who don't like, don't enjoy oral sex. They should partner with each other. Or if you're with somebody who doesn't like oral sex, that becomes the price of admission that you have to ask yourself whether you're willing to pay to be with them. The life with this person who I love in all these other ways, where the sex is great in all these other ways, but they're just not into oral because perhaps they, A, just don't fucking like it. B, maybe they had some trauma related to oral and they just can't do it. Whatever it is, is that a price of admission you're willing to pay? If it is, Yahtzee, we have a wonderful relationship. Have a wonderful oral sex-free life with this person. All that said, kissing, does kissing come standard? Generally, I think yes. Kissing comes standard, a certain kind of making out comes standard. Early in a relationship, though, you will notice if you're in a lot of long-term relationships that that desire to just inhale someone, to drink all of their spit in a single evening – that wanes in time, and the kissing becomes a little bit more perfunctory, or the intervals between those kinds of makeout sessions with your long term partner uh, become longer. That's normal for that insane, insatiable hunger for that other person's tongue and spit and sinuses that wanes, that passes. Its absence bothers you, or its infrequency or total absence bothers you. So that would appear to be a price of admission you were unwilling to pay to be in this relationship. You want or your partner wants that kind of sustained makeup, tongue wrestling, spit drinking, intense kissing shit. And so that's the conversation that you need to have. And maybe there's something going on that your partner is embarrassed or ashamed to bring up. Maybe they have an oral health issue that they're embarrassed about and they worry that you don't like the taste of their spit anymore, that objectively their spit doesn't taste that great anymore. Or maybe you have an oral hygiene or health issue that they're afraid to bring up. You want to stick your tongue in their mouth and 10 years ago when you met, your tongue tasted delicious. Now, because you're an infrequent flosser or toothbrusher or you have gum disease that you haven't treated or you haven't been a dentist in 10 years, now they're less interested in that. And you can figure out what the fuck the problem is if you press the issue what is it going to take for us to get back to this? And you may find out when you press that issue that there's some other reason they don't want your tongue in their mouth and they are no longer as interested as they once were in drinking gallons and gallons of your saliva in a single sitting or laying down or rolling around. Good luck.
4: Hello, Dan. I'm calling you from Sydney. And the question is, I've been with my partner for three months now and um, we haven't had anal sex, not even once. And just normal sex in general, we rarely have it. And he's usually tired or um, just not in the mood. So I like, I really like the guy, and I just don't know if it's something that is a bad sign or not, because every single time that one of my friends asked me, how's it going? How's the sex life? How's that? And when I tell them they give me judgy eyes and like that, it's not normal, but I, I just don't know. Like I can wait. That's not a problem for me. I just want to know if it's a normal thing or not. Um, so what do you think?
2: Is it normal? Well, not for you, I don't think it's normal. Obviously, you wouldn't be asking this question if this was the way you typically rolled at the beginning of a new relationship. Like most people, you probably at the start of a new romantic sexual relationship are going at it all the time. There's something about this guy, though, that's different. This guy isn't into anal, it would seem, and he's not that into sex. And the person you need to be asking questions of isn't me and your friends. The person you need to really drill down on this with is your new boyfriend of three months time. And you can say to him, look, I will wait. I'm happy to wait. Uh, If it takes you time to warm up to someone sexually and for the anal and the passion to come, obviously I'm willing to hang out because three months in with no anal and very little sex, here I am. But this isn't the kind of relationship that I can stay in indefinitely unless it is. There are plenty of people out there in companionate relationships where the primary relationship is about affection and intimacy and a a strong connection, a real bond, but not much sex or any sex at all. And those people either seek sex outside the relationship or they're not interested in sex mutually. But you are interested in sex. You wouldn't be asking this question if you weren't interested in anal and everything else. And so you're not cut out for that kind of relationship where there's a commitment – and it's monogamous, but monogamy in that relationship means that these people don't have sex with each other or anyone else. And you need to know now before you make an even larger emotional commitment or investment in him, what he is, where he is, what his expectations are, what his desires are, how sex functions for him in the context of a long-term relationship. And if you're not on the same page, be friends. Don't be boy friends. But you're clearly worried and you're asking me, should you be worried? Is this worrisome? Well, I think it's worrisome. I would, if I were in this relationship, probably be out of this relationship already. I would be very concerned, very worried. But if I really liked this person and you seem to really like this person, I wouldn't just walk away at this stage. You're already three months in. You've already made some sort of emotional investment in him, some sort of romantic investment in him. It's worth risking the convo. And you're afraid of having the convo because you think that convo might lead to a breakup. That if you ask him what's up and he tells you that he's asexual or gray sexual or just not that sexual and that, you know, his ideal relationship or all of his relationships have been intimate or romantic, committed, but not sexual, you're afraid that that's going to mean it ends. But if that's the truth and that's not acceptable to you, that wouldn't, that kind of relationship wouldn't make you happy. You need it to end. You want it to end. So this is a case of, you're fearing having the conversation with him because it might lead to the end of the relationship depending on the answer you get from him. But if that's the answer you get from him, you need this relationship to end. So you shouldn't fear having that conversation. You should be rushing to have that conversation now at this stage because you need to get out if indeed that's the answer you get. I'm asexual. I'm graysexual. I'm interested in intimacy, but I'm not interested in sex. Perhaps you could ask yourself or discuss with him whether that means – a relationship where you two are partners and you seek sex outside it and whether that would be all right with him. And you have to ask yourself whether that's what you want. That would be all right with you. And if it's not what he wants and it wouldn't be acceptable to you, you need to pull the plug.
5: Hi, Dan, me and my boyfriend together have been together for about six years. And recently within the past year, we've had a little problems, uh, problems in our sex life. We've tried some very kinky stuff. We've definitely been ex- you know, exploring lots of different things. Uh, But at the, the end of the day, I just need more foreplay and I need to be kissed and I need making out. I need to feel wanted and I can't do the kinky things if I'm not turned on. When I tried talking to him about this, he says, well, you know, it wasn't like that in the beginning. Well, you know, I'm not 23 years old anymore. I need more attention. This isn't a brand new relationship. And I can't help it that I'm not turned on. I want to have sex. I want to enjoy it. I want to come. But he just doesn't seem to get that. And I feel like me talking to him makes him feel like there's some pressure there. I feel bad for wanting more attention. Uh, when I say that I just want to make out, he tells me that maybe I should be with women. It sounds like I want female sex because I want it to be more romantical. Uh, That's not the case at all. I just want to feel wanted. Is this wrong?
2: He wants to go from zero to kinky 60 in 2.5 seconds and that doesn't work for you. You say you feel bad for making him feel like there's some pressure there. You shouldn't feel bad for making him feel like there's some pressure there. You should be pressuring him. There's something that he wants. There's a kind of sex that he enjoys and you enjoy when you're ramped up for it. And there's something you need. And he's not giving you what you need to get you to this place where you both want to be, where he wants you to be. And yeah, he should feel the pressure. He should feel the pressure of the impending collapse of his romantic and sexual relationship, the loss of an indulgent GGG partner who's willing and happy and up for and as interested in his kinks as he is because he's not willing to hold you, kiss you, give you the attention you need to kick your desires into high gear, yeah, fuck that guy. You should be putting him on notice that if things continue as they are now, you're going to have to leave him. You're going to have to leave him for someone who will give you more foreplay. And maybe you needed less foreplay when you were 22 or 23 years old. Bodies, desires, dynamics evolve and change over time. And if he wants to be in a long, long long-ass term relationship with you, he's going to have to roll with that. Your erotic script in the course of a long, long, long long-ass term relationship, and I speak from experience, it will change in time. There will be ebb. There will be flow. There will also be revisions. There will also be new needs that present themselves that you have to be up for meeting because we aren't static sexually. Our erotic inner lives shift and morph and and evolve and we transform. What's that – thing and I don't even know it's true that every seven years, every cell in your body has replaced itself and is brand new, your whole brand new human being basically. I think that happens with us sexually too. I think that we shift and change and, and I don't think as radically as every cell is a new cell and your sexuality is completely different but your appetites change. The, the, the shit you ate for dinner when you were 22 years old, you're hopefully not still eating all of that same shit for dinner when you're 30. Hopefully, it's not all ramen and stovetop stuffing when you're 30 Your palate has become more refined and hopefully a little bit more expansive. The same thing applies to sex. I guess I'm mixing metaphors all over the place, dinner and cellular regeneration, but it's true. And he has to be down for the journey with you. And if he's not down for the journey with you, if he's not up for evolving and shifting and changing and continue to explore new territory, and how is foreplay new territory? That should have, like other things we've talked about on today's show, come fucking standard- and you just weren't doing it back in the day for whatever reason, just because you were probably always ramped and juiced. Now you need it. Now he's got to put in a little effort to get you ramped up and juiced. And if he's not willing to put in that effort, he's going to feel the pressure of (laughs) your foot on his ass when you kick him the fuck out the door.
1: Hey, Dan. I am a recently out uh, lesbian living in a metropolitan city, Um, live with my girlfriend and have lived with her for about eight, nine years, raised her son with her, I am 44 years old, and when I say recently out, I mean, like, yesterday. (laughs) I came out to my old parents. They're close to 80 and over 80. Very religious upbringing, very religious. And I've been living with my longtime girlfriend for many years. We keep separate bedrooms, and we've never confirmed our relationship, although I feel like it's obvious. So I decided she last month proposed to me. I was shocked. I said yes. Um, And I figured it was just time. So here's what I did. So I came out to my mom and my my dad, and I basically said, so at some point, me and my girlfriend are going to get married. (laughs) And I inserted her name. And uh, they were like, what? (laughs) My siblings, my nieces, nephews, they took it wonderful. They're so happy for me. It's about time. We kind of knew already. And I was, that was my lingo. I was confirming what they already knew. My parents, however, I'm a little bit worried. I just feel like, although they're kind of saying what they should be saying, that they still love me, they'll always support me. I'm their, you know, baby girl. They love me. But I'm just worried that, like, they're not processing well or I, I don't know. So, My question to you is trying to be succinct, what can I do then to support them? Because I've been in the life (laughs) I've known about my lesbianism for like uh, 20 plus years. So I'm not new to the life. I'm just new to telling my folks who I just put off for way too long. So advice on coming out way late in life.
2: Uh, I have a prescription for you that may may be shocking. Okay. Uh, I think it would be helpful if you went to your parents. You know, you've known uh, about your lesbianism for 20 years. They've known about it for 20 minutes. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think it would be helpful if you went to them and apologized, not for being a lesbian, not for coming out, okay, but for waiting so long to trust them enough to tell them.
1: okay. Great point. And that
2: means having a conversation with them about perhaps the reasons you felt fearful, the reasons you felt you couldn't trust them or the reasons why you waited so long. Cause you kind of, you know, if they are uncomfortable with homosexuality uh, with having a gay kid, you're asking them to cover a lot of ground really fast. Not just, I have a gay kid. I have a lesbian kid. Uh, but I also am about to go to my lesbian daughter's wedding or having to face whether that I'm at the point where I'm ready to go. Cause you know, the day I came out to my mother, if my wedding had been the next day, she wouldn't have come.
1: Right. And my okay. mother
2: was amazing in, in the end on LGBT everything uh, and couldn't have been a, a better ally and a better mom, not just to me, but to other queer kids, including some queer kids we knew whose parents were awful to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it took her a little time to get there. Right. And you're not – because you waited so long to tell your parents, they don't have any time to get there. And you right. And I think you should go to them and say, you know, I want you at the wedding – and and what do we have to do? What, let's have the conversations that we should have had 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, and it's my fault we didn't have them sooner because it was my responsibility to come out to you guys. Right. And so here I am taking responsibility for how I failed you. And now we can have a conversation. And there may be some ways that they failed you. I'm, I'm sure there are reasons I felt afraid to come out to my parents at 15, which were all the things my parents were saying about queer people when I was 10. Uh-huh. And eight and 12 mm-hmm. that were seared into my brain that they did not remember saying.
3: Gotcha.
2: I was afraid of them for legitimate reasons. And, and there may be reasons why you didn't feel comfortable. I'm not like heaping all responsibility for how long you waited on your shoulders. Your parents may have said it, done things that made you afraid to tell them. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. what, yeah, at the same time you apologize to them for waiting so long, hopefully they're going to come through with some apologies t- Directed at you for why you might have waited that long or -hmm. why it wasn't irrational of you to wait that long. Mm Makes perfect sense. But whatever age, whatever age you come out to your parents, I really think, and this is, you know, a lot to heap on the shoulders of people who are coming out to their parents at 14, 15, 16, 17. uh, But you have to model for them the behavior you want to see from them.
6: Mm -hmm.
2: You want to model for them, patience, love, acceptance, yeah. No tolerance for abuse. If they are blowing up at you, if they're being emotionally abusive or physically abusive, uh, if they can't have a conversation that isn't you know deep fried in their own anger mm-hmm. at you for being who you are, uh, you don't have to put up with that. That's not something you have to be patient about. Mm-hmm. You can draw a line about that. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, like, draw them out. I had lots of really difficult and awkward conversations with my mom when I came out about sex Mm-hmm. about what sex meant to me versus what it meant to her. And, you know, I hear a lot of young queer kids today talking about how you would know, you should never have those conversations or they're dehumanizing. Um, and actually those conversations are often what help most. because mm. Once you can pick that lock about what sex means and help, you know, a straight person or a straight parent see that sex means the same thing in our lives, that it means most of the time in their lives, because straight people have a lot more sex than babies. <laughs> yeah. Not just about reproduction. There's something else that sex does, right? Right. And Definitely. sometimes, you, you know, straight people are so uh, are soaking in, you know, straight privilege, but also this kind of uh glow that is that surrounds straight sex that absolves straight sex from being about sex most of the time. Mm-hmm. That our love is about, you know, the procreative possibility. It's about the the, the spark of the divine, including all the blowjobs. <laughs> But there's no procreative thing about to fucking happen.
1: Makes perfect sense. Yeah.
2: You may find you have to have these conversations with your parents,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: as a strategic move, I don't think you did anything wrong. As a strategic move, though, leading with an apology to draw mm-hmm. them out to get them talking may mm-hmm. be really helpful.
1: Okay.
2: And right. congratulations.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Long time. It, it, it
2: must be such a. It must be such a weight lifted from your shoulders to be known by your family the way Um, you are now.
1: I'm starting to feel that. Yeah, I didn't feel it right away. I was waiting for like the sky to open up and like, uh, but it's been a a week now and I can feel I can feel a little a little weight lifted for sure. When's the wedding? (laughs) We don't know. We want to do something very low key, like maybe on a beach in Maui or maybe Vegas and
2: keep it real small and, and fun. Well, I hope, I hope your logical family is there for you and I hope your biological family uh, – I hope there's a lot of overlap there between your logical and biological family. I hope your siblings and parents uh, are there for you. But, if, but even if they're not, uh, I wish you joy and you can still have joy on that day.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it.
2: <laughs> You're welcome. And congratulations again. I love, I love a wedding. I cry at weddings.
1: <laughs> I'm ready to cry now. So thank you.
2: You're welcome. Good luck. Hi Dan.
7: So last night me and my partner were at a pub and we got talking to this group of people, um, they seemed nice, um and you know, they were like buying us drinks and we were like um just chatting and then um one of them said they were like struggling dating and then we got onto the subject of tinder and i was talking about tinder and then they got confused because we were a couple and i was like well we're open we're in an open relationship and then they started um lecturing us about god (laughs) and they kept saying it's okay for now but don't ever get married because in the eyes of god you'll be cheating and i was like well it's not cheating if we both Fine with it. I believe you know every kind of relationship has a right to marriage, personally, and you know there's lots of other kind of marriages other than the church marriage, etc. etc. They weren't having any of it. I was just wondering <laughs> um, if you had like a good argument for those kinds of people when you meet them, or just you would just recommend not talking to these kinds of people or because i think it's important to sort of have discussions about it but um you know it got to a point where i felt like i was talking to a brick wall wall because they were very set in their way of like god likes it this way (laughs) so just wondering is there like a default thing that you always say um when somebody has those arguments or do you just not bother
2: A month or two ago in the United States, a group of evangelical quote-unquote leaders crapped out a manifesto attacking homosexual immorality and transgenderism. Uh, They call themselves the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a coalition for biblical sexuality. and. In addition to condemning homosexuality and transgenderism, because we all didn't know that evangelical Christians had a problem with that, so they had to bring out a brand new statement. Who knew? What a shock. What a surprise that evangelical Christian leaders like Tony fucking Perkins don't like queer people. Film at 11. Manifesto coming down the pike. Stop the fucking presses. But in addition, again, to attacking queer people, they attacked polygamous or polyamorous relationships, which is hilarious. They said God didn't design marriage to be polygamous or polyamorous, which is kind of the argument the assholes he ran into in that pub were making, which, as I pointed out at the time, is going to come as news to Esau, who had two wives, Moses, who had three wives, King David, who had eight wives, and Solomon, who had 300 wives and scores of other Biblical imaginary action figures. Um, It'll also come as news, and you could throw this in the faces of these assholes if you run into them again. This will come as news, God's adamant opposition to polyamory or polygamy. Uh, It'll come as news to the authors of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Three very important books in the Bible that evangelical Christian leaders lean on when they want to shame or control or condemn queer people but kind of ignore when they're looking. But don't pay that much attention to when it comes to the way straight people lead their lives. Evangelical Christian leaders aren't stoning their daughters to death on their wedding night for not being virgins, but they are screaming and young and jumping up and down about what Leviticus has to say about uh, putting gay men to death. But anyway, these books contain shortlifts of polygamous and polyamorous best practices. So if this is really so offensive to God, what you and your boyfriend are doing, uh, or will become offensive to God the instant you marry, uh, someone needs to let God know that he fucked up the first three books of the Bible. Because it endorses, in addition to slavery, infanticide, uh, murdering your children, genocide, uh, it endorses polygamy and polyamory. So you can also, when people feel entitled to rip into the way you lead your lives uh, because you've shared a drink and now they get to tell you how to live, you can also just pick up your drinks and go which is probably what I would have done. Well, actually, I probably would have gotten to an argument with them because I really enjoy that. But you have my permission next time to just pick up your drinks and go, or if they get super assholey, pick up your drinks and pour them on their feet.
8: Hi, Dan. This is a 30-year-old female in the Midwest giving you a call. I am calling you because I'm honestly at a loss. I've always thought of myself as a liberal and a progressive and someone who's really on the left side of the scale, but lately I'm starting to wonder what partially brought this on are two events in my life. First of all, my little sister started at a very liberal liberal arts college, which is actually the college I went to. And I was thrilled when she decided to go there. However, in the pre-coursework that she had to do to start the college, they had a very extensive course on microaggressions. And it's gotten to the point where my sister is literally afraid to ask people where they're from because she thinks someone's going to get offended. It seems like a really big policing of thought and language to me, but I don't know what to do about it. But what actually prompted my call was the recent passing of Hugh Hefner. And I'm not really sure what I thought about Hugh Hefner, but one of the anti-Trump groups that I was a part of on on Facebook posted kind of a, a grave dancing post about it. And I happened to respond and just say, what does this have to do with Trump? And since when do I have to agree or feel the same way as um All of the quote unquote issues that are linked with hating Trump, which apparently is also hating Hugh Hefner. Now, I don't really know how I feel about Hugh Hefner, but I'm currently in a Facebook discussion that I want to get out of, though my husband is telling me that I need to keep telling people to think otherwise or at least challenge their thoughts, where essentially I'm being called a misogynist because I did not think that this was an appropriate venue to discuss this, nor did I think it had anything to do with Trump. And I am finding that I'm being attacked for just thinking differently or not entirely having, um, not, not seeing him as the biggest misogynist of all time. Now, to me, this feels like a policing of thought and a judgment of opinions of others who don't think like you. And isn't that exactly what we're trying to fight against with the Republicans? Give me some help here, Dan. Am I not a liberal? What, what is, is something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with everybody else? I I don't know. Um, I'm not going to go through my liberal cred and all the things that I do, but um, as an ally, as a supporter of people of all ethnicities, as an immigrant myself, I'm just feeling a little lost as to what I'm supposed to be doing.
2: The first thing I would to address is this question, your sister being afraid to ask people, where they're from. And that can seem innocuous. Oh, we should be able to all ask each other where we're from. But when people of color, say an Asian dude, is asked where he's from and he's from Michigan, that answer often doesn't suffice because the person asking the question, typically a white American, uh, means where are you from in this otherizing, to use a college campusy term way to say you're not really an American, you're not really from here, you're ultimately from elsewhere as opposed to me who is from here even though my Irish family arrived here 120 years ago or whatever the fuck it might be. And that is problematic. That is racist. That is I think, a legit and highly annoying kind of microaggression. And I think that white people should be thoughtful about asking that question of their fellow Americans or their fellow citizens or anybody else uh, of color. And often, you know, white people ask that, where is your family from? Because, you know, I'm Irish, or you're Italian, you're German, whatever. White people will throw that around at each other thoughtlessly and then not see how it's going to be perceived differently when you ask that of somebody who is black or Hispanic or Latino or Asian or anything else. So I think it's a good job. I think it's a good deal that your sister is thinking more critically about that kind of question because depending on who you ask it. And depending on how you pursue it, it can be an assholey move. And we should all avoid being assholes. The people on your anti-Trump Facebook page are being assholes to you. There has been a lot of writing. Actually, there are two great columns in the New York Times. There was a feminist who came to the defense of Hugh Hefner on the New York Times op-ed page. And Ross Douthat just went at Hugh Hefner and tongs on the New York Times op-ed page. Ross Duthat, who is a cultural and social conservative, is an arch-Catholic, is anti-choice, I think would, if it were up to him, slap the birth control out of everybody's hands, uh, is anti-gay marriage. He had feminists cheering for him in this column where he just destroyed Hugh Hefner. So I think that people of goodwill, people on both sides of the who's a feminist, who's a misogynist divide, can fall in different places. You have this feminist I, I think prof defending Hugh Hefner and the ways in which he was progressive uh, and ahead of his time uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and then you had Ross that really laying into him for his misogyny uh, and the way he exploited and harmed and abused women. And so a person can be a mixed bag. A person can have done good things and have done bad things. And we can add them all up at the end of the day and see if they made more of a positive contribution to the world and the culture than a negative contribution. And the jury is out for some on Hugh Hefner. And your friends on this anti-Trump Facebook page aren't helping the left. If instead of engaging with you about why they disagree with your interp of Hugh Hefner, just start labeling you a misogynist and part of the problem – Uh, That's that part of the left that would rather lose the fight surrounded by allies of total purity than win the fight with imperfect allies. And you can say, you know, maybe I'm an imperfect ally because I am not with you on Hugh Hefner yet, but we agree on so much more. And that's what the left, I think, has a problem with these days. Not making common cause with people that you agree with about most everything – Instead, attacking people who you agree with about most everything for the small, tiny handful of whatever it is, whatever thought crimes they're committing, and for what? So there can be fewer people on the left, so there can be fewer people organizing on that Facebook page to oppose Trump? No, 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 no. That is self-defeating. I would rather win, surrounded by imperfect people that I have disagreements with, that we can engage respectfully about, than lose surrounded by people who I think are pure and perfect and unsullied. And also Facebook pages like that are opt-in. People there are assholes. If it's becoming a self-reinforcing collection of assholes laying into each other, find a new Facebook anti-Trump page to join and get the fuck out of there. We're going to take a quick break from the calls so we can have a chat with Angela Robinson, director of the new feature film, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Hey, Angela, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, Really well. And you've worked a lot in television, How to Get Away with Murder, True Blood, Hung, the L Word. This is your first feature film, isn't it?
9: No, actually, this is my third feature film. Oh, my God. God, I'm so sorry. I made. No, that's cool. Uh, I made two feature films kind of early in my career. I made a film called Debs. And I made another film, uh, Herbie film for Disney. Um, and then I went and I did a ton of television.
2: Well, this is your return to feature films. So, and congratulations. Exactly. On what's shaping up to be a triumphant return, Wonder Woman uh, is having a big cultural moment. There's books, documentaries, uh, now a feature film, your biopic about her creator. But it's really more accurate to say her creators. Your film is titled Wonder Women, plural for a reason. Isn't that right?
9: Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. The the film is about the extraordinary man who created Wonder Woman, but it's also about the two women in his life who inspired her creation.
2: And, and a lot of people aren't familiar with this backstory.
9: Right, yes. No, it's been kind of hidden from history for a long time. Um, they are his wife uh, was this woman named Elizabeth Holloway Marston. who was this incredible woman. She had three degrees and was an attorney and a psychologist along with her husband and they taught at Marston. So she was uh, very influential in his life. And also the both of them basically uh, were psychologists teaching at uh, Radcliffe in the late twenties and they fell in love, kind of collectively, with um, one of their students, a woman named Olive Byrne. And together they did a lot of work creating the lie detector test. And they lived together and had a family together with kids for many years. And all of that went into the creation of the Wonder Woman comic.
2: How so? How did they plow that in, their their polyamorous relationship? How did that factor in to the, the creation of Wonder Woman?
9: Well, Marston had this really interesting... He was a psychologist. And so he wrote um, a lot of books. One was called The Emotions of Normal People, which I think is just an incredible title. Um, And he had a psychological theory on human behavior, which he called DISC theory. And it stood for dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. And his theory was basically that he did all these kind of tests on his students and all sorts of people and fraternities and sororities. And he basically decided that men were inherently anarchistic and violent, and women were inherently loving and nurturing. So he thought the path to peace on the planet was to have women rule the world, basically. (laughs) Um, But he he just thought that that was just like a better idea and that would bring peace to the planet. But he thought men wouldn't give up their power voluntarily. And so he got this great idea, which was basically if women could kind of learn to use what he called captivation emotion or their kind of sexual allure to dominate men in a way that was pleasurable to men, then they would give, men would kind of give up their power voluntarily and then women could be in charge and, the world
2: would be a better place. So William uh, Marston wasn't just in a polyamorous relationship? Was he in a dom-sub relationship? Was he a pioneer in so many ways? Like so many things we talk about now constantly on this program and everybody else who's working in the sex and relationship field, you know, open relationships, uh, polyamorous relationships, folding kink into your relationship. Was he just, although... He did, of course, endorse a kind of gender essentialism I think a lot of people would re- reject now and fucked a student, which would get you in trouble right. on most college campuses. Now, I'm sure Radcliffe now has rules against professors fucking students. But was he ahead of his time?
9: Yes. He was so ahead of his time. I think he's still ahead of his time. I hesitate to discuss the Marstons and Olive Byrne kind of in the language that we have today mm-hmm. to describe what they were doing because I don't think they thought about it like that. You know what I mean? I feel like, and in the movie, I try to tell... What I think is a really organic love story, just about three people falling in love and starting to explore these themes within their relationship. Without a,
2: and they didn't have a sort of off-the-shelf framework uh, to to help them understand what they were doing. They were really doing something radical.
9: Right. Exactly. I think that due to me, I don't like all this these words and kind of definitions and identities and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think were part of their, how they conceived of themselves. So, I think from kind of a modern framework, you can look at their story and apply all these things to them, but that's not what my task as a filmmaker was to do. My task was just to kind of say what would happen if these three people fell in love, and then an exploration of Marston's ideas and philosophies. And he really, he had this notion that that the best form of happiness was what he called submission to a loving authority. And I think that was literal and also metaphorical where he thought like, uh, if a student loves a great teacher, do you know what I mean? And that teacher's loving, mm-hmm. um, then or a general and a soldier or, you know, he applied it to government, to all sorts of, things. And I read this book, which is kind of helpful to me, called The Sadomasochism of Everyday Life, mm-hmm. which was just about how in the in the film the kind of exploration of BDFM is literal but also figurative in that I think its point is that these kind of power dynamics play out all over the place between the police and perpetrators or between, do you know I mean, that these, in, in with your boss right. and an employee, that these kind of Systems of power exchange and dominance and submission are in every aspect of our life. He was really what he called um, compliance, basically. He's like if people are forced to do what they don't want to do, they're merely complying, and that leads to resentment. He was like, you have to induce people. You basically have to seduce people into your way of thinking, and that that's the only way— that people have to want to do
2: it. I, I don't want to. I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but it does seem to me that you know, just in hearing about uh, his book, the you know the, the the emotional lives of normal people, or yeah. whatever that title was, and his theories of uh, dominance, yes. submission, and compliance, and inducing it and seducing it. It does seem to me that you had someone here who was into BDSM, into kink, aroused by dominance and submission, trying to project onto yes. the whole world uh, his kink, or, or or telling the whole world that if you everyone would embrace my particular sort of arousal pattern everyone would be much happier when actually what was going on is he was happy when he got to indulge in this kind of kink and he just kind of assumed that everybody else would be equally as happy was he trying to universalize the shit that made his dick hard
9: i you know the film really explores that at uh one point i, mean, I guess i'm allowed to swear on this program yes, you are. Uh, at one point his wife asked him like when are you going to stop justifying the whims of your cock with science, basically. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the movie really explores this kind of contradiction between, like, Marston's full of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the first line of Emotions of Normal People is, are you normal? And the rest of the book is a huge defense of why he is normal and why his ideas are right and this is the right way to be. And, and the the film really kind of Takes him to task and investigates a lot of. It tells the kind of love story, but it also he has. There's a lot of strong female characters bringing him to really have to defend his notions about feminism and sexuality and bondage and whether it is self-serving, you know, exactly like how you just described it, or whether it is, you know, really trying to save the world with his ideas. And I personally think it's kind of a combination of both. I think he's a
2: fascinating guy. It's, it's rare for there to be a film where the kinkster or kinksters, I guess, uh, but the kinkster is the the hero or the protagonist. Kink is usually a stand in for something destructive as opposed to a creative force that led to you know, the creation of this enduring icon, Wonder Woman. And uh, I really enjoyed the film and I really enjoyed seeing the kinkster as uh, a force of, good or, or or a force of creation, as opposed to the kink being a stand-in for sinister or uh, destructive or damaged, which is usually the case.
9: It was really important for me not to otherize their experience, or it's always portrayed as this, like, you know, crazy, kinky, dark, you know, on film. Right,
2: without joy, without connection, without intimacy— It's this sleazy, dark, intense...
9: Right, right, right. And that was... I actually put this whole missive out to all the departments. I said, this is not... We're not doing that in this film. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, there's a dialectic in the movie between fantasy and reality. And that's what they're struggling with. And fantasy being Wonder Woman and being Paradise Island and being this kind of utopia where you could be who you want to be. So in the sequences that where they're exploring their sexuality and their and their sexual dynamic together, I really wanted those to be full of joy and fantasy and creation because to me I I remember talking to Sony Stage six um uh finance the film and I said to me the the light of sequences are about sex and the sex scenes are about freedom and about the freedom to like discover your truest self with these partners and what they can kind of create together, which ultimately became Wonder Woman.
2: Okay, one last question. Uh, I have to admit, and maybe this is a, a boast uh, in the drag of an admission, but I am immune to the charms of superhero movies and the Marvel Universe and that other universe, whatever the <laughs> fuck it's called. And so I, I'm afraid that some people <laughs> like me who just don't go see Thor movies and... Uh, What's-His-Face uh, covered in metal, whatever that movie is. Um, yeah. I, I don't see these movies. I, I could give a shit. Iron Man? Iron Man, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Uh, I, I could yeah. give a shit about these movies. Um, and I'm afraid that some people like me <laughs> may hear, oh, there's another, another, another Wonder Woman movie out there? Not for me. This movie is for people right. who may not be into the superhero movie genre.
9: I think. I mean, actually, what's been really remarkable is, I don't know, I went into thinking thinking that, you know, I mean, because of some of the topics that maybe, I don't know, like, is America ready for this movie? But it's been really embraced across a wide spectrum of people. Do you know what I mean? In a kind of, do you know, like with art house audiences and comic book people and superhero people. And I actually feel like the message... The message is basically of a love story and the, how this love story is the true origin for Wonder Woman. And people have really um, kind of come together around that message, which was really, has been really
2: cool and gratifying so far. Angela Robinson is the director. Professor Marston and The Wonder Women is the film opened to really great reviews at the Toronto National Film Festival and opens in theaters October, I think, 13th. Is that right? That is correct. All right. You will want to go see this movie if you are interested in these themes that we are constantly addressing, or these issues that are constantly coming up on the Lovecast, BDSM, polyamory, bisexuality, unicorns, how to find them. All of that is a part of this movie and so much more. Uh, Thank you, uh, Angela, for jumping on the phone with us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, I recommend this film and I think everybody should see it. I really enjoyed it.
9: Great. Thank you so
6: much. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old straight male calling from Europe. I am in a pretty happy long-term relationship. Uh, my girlfriend and I have been living together for three years now. So my girlfriend is using an app to track her period in which she inputs when she has the period, how heavy it is every day, and but also moods, uh, including sexual desire. This app then predicts what she can expect in terms of her period, but also pretty accurately predicts her sexual desire. Um, so recently she asked me to install this app as well so that um, she can share her um, data with me. I can then see myself when to expect a period, which is okay with me, and it's actually good. But also what she would like is that I can see how much she's up for sex every day. What she says is that well, although we have um, good sexual life in general, um, she says that she uh, she wishes that I was better at um, reading her moods sometimes. So it happens that um she is very much up for sex. I can be tired, um I can have something else in my mind or I may just not feel like it. Um and she's unhappy about those instances. Um myself, I'm not sure whether it's really uh, me failing to read her mood or rather I can read her mood and I know what she wants but I just don't want to like meet her expectations because I don't feel like it. What you would like for me with this app is for example come home from work and I can already see how much you'll be up for sex and I can prepare for it. Basically, yeah, I myself am not sure about it. First of all, um, I'm wondering whether it's actually fair to expect your partner to always be prepared to have sex with you. Second, I'm worried that by having this information about what exactly her mood is, I'm going to kind of lose interest in initiating sex myself. I don't mind if I know what her desire is as well, but I also like spontaneous sex, and I'm not sure I would like it if I always knew what, whether she's up for sex or not. I think I do. I like initiating sex in a, in a way that I start something, and I try to see how she reacts, and I continue in one or another way. So basically, I'm worried that I will lose her interest if I always know what she's up to or like what, how, how much she wants sex.
2: I can understand why this squeaks you out or unnerves you or turns you off. I wouldn't want to be ordered around by an app. I would feel pressured. I would feel performance anxiety. I would feel obligated to come through with a D at perhaps times when I wasn't feeling it. Because, oh my God, the app says must fuck tonight. But I'm a little concerned uh, when you say that you want sex to be spontaneous, that you want to I- initiate and see if you can't, Draw her out, and that'll be less rewarding for you somehow if you know that she's horny because there are guys out there, and I'm not saying that you're one of them, I just detect a couple of sort of little tiny, not red, maybe pink or violet flags. There are guys out there who want girlfriends who have no desire who who don't get horny, that they make horny that you know they seduce them, that they instill desire, desire isn't present, the girl is pure, and without animalistic urges like the dude but the dude can through his doodly sexy wily ways uh turn this block of stone into a panting orgasm machine and that's all his magic dick power right and i don't want to encourage that if that's who you are because that's fucked up women have agency women have desire women get horny it sounds like she may be invested in being that kind of block of marble if she can't tell you when she's horny Uh, And so there are times when she's super horny, but she doesn't let it show and won't say, won't use her words. And she's frustrated at the ends of those evenings when you are incapable of doing what all people are incapable of doing for their partners, reading her mind. And she wants to outsource the telling that she is horny to this app. That's a little fucked up too. So I think both of you need to use your words and have a conversation about what it is she's trying to do with this app. Why she wants to use the app to tell you what she herself can tell you anytime. I'm up for sex right now. I'm super fucking horny. She can even initiate. And if it's a turnoff for you when she initiates, and that's part of what is turning you off here, not just that she's using an app to order you around, but she's using an app to initiate. And you don't want her to initiate because you think that's what the male does in the relationship. It's the man who initiates and the woman who succumbs. Well, that's fucked up and that's sexist. And if I were her, that would be a huge turn off to me. So the app, I think, is a symptom of a disease that may go deeper in your relationship and in both of your psyches and both of your attitudes toward sex and gender roles and who does what in a a sexual relationship based on who is male and female. And I think that's what you should have a conversation with your girlfriend about. Now, I'm sure there are some guys out there who would get off on being ordered around by an app. You weren't one of them.
10: Hi, Dan. I'm calling from Austin, Texas, and I have a unfortunate situation that I'm not involved in. I just heard of secondhand, but uh, a friend of mine works at a company. It's actually her company where she has several employees, and one of her employees has opened up to her that he moved to Austin from another place with his boyfriend. Um, he's 18 years old, um, but has been with this person for a few years. And he has admitted that the boyfriend is prostituting him out and that he has a really hard time with this. It does not appear to be his choice. He seemed very emotionally upset, as my friend was describing. And she came to me because she knew I had experience helping sexual assault survivors. But I didn't really know what to tell her in terms of this specific prostitution type of uh, sexual assault. You know, I actually don't know if that is something that would be prosecuted as sexual assault against the boyfriend who is obviously in these prostitution situations not having sex with his partner. He is being asked to have sex with other people. But the, the question that I have, I guess, is, are there resources that, um, you know, outside of RAIN, the uh, hot national hotline, are there social groups online? Is there any other kind of resource uh, for someone like this who may feel trapped in a relationship and is not willing to or ready to go to authorities um, to get out of it and to try to get this person prosecuted for, you know, running? Uh, a prostitution practice, apparently. Obviously, in this situation, I think the person who is being prostituted is probably very confused, and it is not something that he would prefer to do. It does not sound like this is a consensual um, situation. It sounds like there's manipulation and coercion involved, so I would not want to get that person in any kind of trouble. How do you provide the resources to that person so that they can make a decision eventually if they Find the strength to, to leave that partner and possibly keep that other person from ever prostituting someone again.
2: Joining me by phone to help tackle this call, Mistress Matisse, sex worker, cannabis entrepreneur, sex workers' rights activist, and frequent guest expert here on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Matisse, how you doing?
0: Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh,
2: uh, good. I, I'm doing well too. This call is distressing, isn't it?
0: It is disturbing. Yeah. This is not. This is. This is not the fortunate situation at all. Uh, so I listened to it carefully and I think that the caller has really good intentions. Um, and so she's to be, you know, given, given credit for that. What I would say to her is, first of all, dismiss completely from your mind, the idea of calling the police or getting the police involved in any way. This will only get worse if they get involved. Why
2: is that? Why would that be a mistake?
0: Well, technically her, uh, the, the 18 year old young man in the situation is also a criminal, uh, he has committed mm-hmm. a crime in the eyes of the law and why he did it is not of import to them. Uh, she said that he'd recently moved to Texas and that, the way she said it, I kind of have the impression he moved here from another country. So especially if he's a recent immigrant, he's a young man in a same-sex relationship uh, who's committed a crime. And that's not a good thing to be, especially in Texas.
2: And you can't predict how police or prosecutors will react. You would think, right, no. uh, and this is often not the case, that you know, if he is being coerced Uh, into doing sex work, which no sex workers' rights activist endorses. Uh, We were for decriminalization because that will lead to a world where there's fewer people being coerced because people who are being coerced can go to the authorities without fear of prosecution themselves. But if you go to the authorities, the chances that they will also charge the young man who was coerced uh, are really high or or, or can't be predicted. And people have been – you you know, you know the, the whole criminal justice system is set up to persecute and prosecute sex workers regardless of whether they're uh, doing it under duress or not. It's not like, oh, you're doing it under duress, you get a pass. Oh, you're doing it of your own free will, we're going to prosecute you. Those aren't distinctions that prosecutors and police departments do. Yep, no, they absolutely are not. So in your desire to rescue this guy – uh, if I can use that term, which is, I know, loaded in the sex workers' yep. rights community. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, if, you're, if your caller, if your intent is to rescue this guy, calling the authorities may have the opposite impact. You could really fuck up the rest of this young man's life.
0: Yes. So, yeah, definitely do not call the police, in in my opinion.
2: So uh, so that's what you shouldn't so, do. What should they do?
0: So, uh, there are basically no resources for people in this this young man's situation who want to get out of it. There's especially not for a man. It's, it, there's very, very, very little for any kind of woman or young person. Uh, unfortunately, this is a sexist thing, and, and the, the rescue industry, as we so um, fondly call it, uh, does not recognize male sex workers as having any kind of difficulty that they need to be rescued from. You know, It's just assumed that you know women have no agency and men have all the agency, and that applies also to men doing sex work. It's a very strange way of looking at the world.
2: Right, women are damsels in distress in whatever form, and men. Right, and
0: it's not that they don't want it; they don't care. Uh, So the the two places, I mean, she was keen to ask about whether his partner, who let's call him the abusive partner, the abusive partner cannot actually be charged for sexual assault from having for inducing his partner, even under duress, to have sex with somebody else. At least I don't think so. It's not the way my non-lawyer, my law. So, so yeah, like, what this boy needs is help. He needs assistance getting his life kind of restarted without this person. And I would think that, I mean, there's sort of two places I would send him for that. And one of them is the gay community, and one of them is actually, although this seems counterintuitive, kind of the sex work community, uh, because sex workers deal with people who want to leave the industry all the time. We're accustomed to that. It's a normal thing to transition in and out, uh, and they may have some some resources for him themselves. Uh, and the, you know, the gay community resources in general may also apply here. He's in an abusive relationship and he wants to get out. Okay. That's mm-hmm. a situation that, you know, gay oriented social services orgs have a, have a script for.
2: The other thing that they can do is they can step up. You know, he, th- this young man confided in his coworker, the friend of the caller, uh, about what he's going through right now. And I think the solution here is to get him the fuck away from the boyfriend of a few years who's exploiting him and, and, and pressuring him to do something he doesn't want to do, the, the abusive partner. And, yeah. you know, there's a lots of different circumstances under which, you know, people, people's friends, people's families come together to help extricate someone from an abusive relationship. And it may help to just to think of it as an abusive relationship. And I agree. Does he need money? Does he do, need a place to stay? Uh, Someone needs to talk to him about how someone leaves an abusive relationship. You know, you make a plan. You don't inform your abuser that you're leaving. You disappear. You get a new phone. You get a place to go. You get a place to stay. And if there's a community of people uh, around this young man who are willing to help him, who are willing to step up, you can make that plan for him. You can help him make that plan and help him get away from this guy. But if he's unwilling to get away from this guy, there may not be a lot that you can do.
0: Yeah, that is a tough part here, is that if he's not ready to leave his partner, there is nothing you can do. Um, and But definitely, definitely do not call the police in some sort of attempt to force this this younger man to leave his abusive partner. That will only make things much worse. So, yeah, basically what you can do is help him get resources to, to leave.
2: To leave this abusive relationship. I think that's really a smart way of framing it, Matisse, to yeah. go to this gay social service org in your community that may have resources for people in same sex abusive relationships and talk about this as an abusive relationship, not as a pimp, prostituted kid relationship or young man relationship but an abusive one because they may be able to tap into resources. Uh, can you speak just quickly for people out there who may be a little shocked that I would call a sex worker and sex workers rights activists to address a situation like this where someone is being pressured into doing sex work? Because I think people who don't pay attention and just hear sex workers rights activists think that That that, that sex workers wouldn't be interested in uh, helping people who want to get out of sex work get out of sex work. But the sex workers uh, that I've known in the the movement and, and outside the movement, the last thing that they want to see, the last thing sex workers like you want to see is anyone doing sex work under duress.
0: Absolutely. Right. That's in mean, sex workers' rights. Is, it means rights for everyone. And that doesn't mean that you all have to be sex workers. It means, no, we want you to have the rights to be safe and be happy. And and number one is among those, if you don't want to be doing sex work, then we want to help you get out. Uh, and we're the only mm-hmm. ones who will approach this non-judgmentally and without some kind of, you know, a jail aspect of it, or you have to like go to church and swear to Jesus. It's like, no, we're just going to help you. We're going to get you some resources. We'll try to you know find you a different job and, and just kind of act as a, an ad hoc social services
2: network. And that's, you know, the, uh, I support the Sex Workers Outreach Project. I know that you support the Sex Workers Outreach pro- Project. Yes. People hear that who just aren't familiar with the issue and they think, oh, this is some sort of recruiting agency for people to do sex work. They're doing outreach to sex workers and potential sex workers. No. A lot of what no. sex work, SWAP, Sex Workers Outreach Project does is provide people with the information, and the resources to do sex work safely or to leave sex work if they don't wish to be doing it.
0: Yeah. We want sex workers to have the right to do whatever they want. And this boy doesn't want to be a sex worker. So he should not be.
2: For me, there's a parallel to the abortion rights movement. Um, the last thing uh, people who are pro-choice want to see is someone choosing abortion because they feel they have no other choice. They're, they're choosing abortion under economic duress or because they're being pressured by a partner. That's not choice. That's not the abortion that anybody who's pro-abortion, pro-abortion rights, pro-access to abortion services wants to see uh, because that's someone who's going to potentially be really scarred by yeah, by getting but, an abortion, by having that abortion, and then they become anti-abortion activists, or they, you know, they're fodder for the anti-choice movement to deny all women the choice because some women have made this choice under duress or under economic uh, stress, and so th- th- we don't want to see that. And the same thing, I think, in the sex workers' rights community, it's just like it's parallel. Kind of, there's an echo there that yeah. you know, a lot of people who do sex work consensually, it's their own free choice, are tarred with this brush that's picked up by people who are anti. Uh, The free choice to do sex work where people sometimes are coerced or or, or do sex work under duress. But the same way some people get abortions under duress doesn't mean we ban all abortions. It means we address the other social problems that lead women uh, in some cases to get abortions under duress. We have to address the problems that might trap someone in doing uh, sex work against their will. It's the against Mm -hmm. their will part, the under duress part that's a problem, not the abortion, not the sex work.
0: Yeah, that's a really good parallel, and it is a bo- an issue of bodily autonomy. Uh, and so, yes, if this young man does not want to be doing it, we don't want him to be doing it, and I would certainly offer him all the resources at my immediate disposal. There, uh, you mentioned, uh, the Sex Workers Outreach Project, and that's a great organization. They actually have a chapter in Austin, Texas. Uh, and I, I was just looking on Twitter, and I think it's, uh, uh, Twitter slash swap underscore ATX. But there is a sex workers outreach project chapter in Austin that he could reach out to. It's
2: a great place to start. Mistress Matisse, sex worker, cannabis entrepreneur, sex workers rights activist, good friend and frequent guest. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone this morning.
0: Thanks for having me, Dan.
4: Hi, Dan. I am a gay male, 28 in the Midwest. And my question is about being in a polyamorous relationship. I've been in a triad for Uh, about seven years now, and one of my partners, it's great, there's still sexual attraction, we still have sex as often as possible, it's going good. My other partner, on the other hand, though we both are in love with each other and we both you know, still live in the same house and do everything together, um, there's not as much sex as there was in the beginning, where my other partner and I try and have sex at least, I mean, whenever we can, which ends up being like once a week, Um, My other partner and I can go a month or two without really even touching each other in any kind of sexual way. And it does bother me, but every time I bring it up with him, he kind of either pushes it off or if I have a serious conversation, we'll end up having sex, but it'll just be the one time, almost like he wants to put it off a little bit more. The other kind of wrench in everything is, like I said, we are polyamorous and he is very much interested in adding a fourth or somebody else. But I feel like what's happening is he almost is looking for someone else to take my place as a sexual person and doesn't see me as a sexual being anymore. And I don't know how to balance being with somebody who does see me attractive and see me as a sexual being and wants to have sex with me while also being with someone who is not as into it. And Like I said, we're a triad. All three of us are together and they have sex pretty often, but I feel like... I'm missing something and I don't know what to do or how to spark more sex from one partner when it doesn't feel like he wants it.
2: I talk a lot about the validity of a companionate relationship. Sometimes relationships are companionate from the outset. There was never a lot of sex. It was never about sex. Sometimes relationships become companionate over time. And if both partners in that companionate relationship are content, whether it was companionate from the get-go or became companionate in time, became less sexual in time, there isn't a problem. Your relationship with one of your partners, the one that you have sex only rarely with, sounds like it's on the becoming companionate track. Also sounds like that may not be acceptable to you, that you want there to be a strong sexual component to both of your relationships in this polyamorous triad. You want sex to bind all three of you together forever. You may have to grieve that. It does seem like the relationship with the one with whom you have less sex is tracking companionate. And... It's not that he's less interested in sex. He's having a lot of sex with his original partner, uh, with his other partner. Actually, I don't know when you guys became a triad or in what form the triad came together. Uh, And he's interested in having sex with this other boyfriend to be named later. Less interested in having sex with you. I guess there's rejection there. And that hurts. And is that a hurt that you're willing to absorb and grieve and get past so that you can stay in this polyamorous triad that's becoming kind of a companionate and sexual triad at once where one of the relationships that you're in is in this triad is companionate and the other is still really sexual. And if that's something that you can navigate, if that's something that you can straddle, perhaps you could stay and perhaps you could grieve it, get past it, welcome this forth into your partner's relationship, but you're going to have to wrestle with, get past a different kind of jealousy that most people think about or ever have to confront in a one-on-one relationship or a three-on-three relationship, as is the case here. seems to me that you and both your partners need to have some really open and honest conversations about what you mean to each other now and what you mean to each other going forward, what you need from a relationship, and whether you can let go of some of what you need. In a relationship, in your relationship with the guy with whom you're having less sex in order to preserve the polyamorous triad and everything else you value about the relationship, including your relationship with him, which still sounds loving and supportive and, and, and worth continuing to invest in emotionally. But the onus is really on you and what you're willing to accept and what you're willing to grieve, what you're willing to let go of to keep the triad together. Indeed, as the triad may be morphing into a quad.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the woman in episode 571 who was worried about her boyfriend living in his car. I think she really has to look at the boyfriend. Um, I am a 32-year-old professional who has spent the last year living in a garden shed in order to get my house built. Um, This may be her boyfriend's opportunity to make his music career work, or it may be an opportunity to play Peter Pan. She's got to take a hard look at him and decide.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the woman on episode 571 who's going to a bondage B&B with her husband. Uh, I recommend that she go to YouTube and find a video on tying a basic chest harness. It's very easy to learn, almost no risk of injury. Every woman who experiences it comments on how sensual it feels, and it would be a good way for that couple to do something kind of fun at the B&B.
4: Hey, Savage Lovecasters. This is a call in response to episode 571 and the trans dude who wondered when to disclose on hookup apps like Grindr or Scruff. And I say to disclose right away, um, either in the selections that they give you. I know that Scruff has um, a transgender option. Um, and if it's not in the option, then go ahead and put it in your profile. And of course, it helps to weed out transphobes, assholes, people who aren't compatible. But it also, I think that what we forgot to also mention in, in its full variety is that it gives men like me who are totally into trans dudes, um, not in a creepy, fetishistic way, but in a variety of certainly the spice of life. Uh, men of all origins have great bodies, great stories to tell and are fun when you take their pants off. So don't hide from us, man. We want to find you um, and put a big smile on your face.
2: And we're going to leave it there. Quick note, my shows with Esther Perel are this week, Thursday, at the Egyptian Theater in Seattle. Unfortunately, that event is sold out. So your only chance to see me and Esther talk about her new book, State of Affairs, is this Friday, October 13th at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver, British Columbia. Esther will be answering your questions with me live and signing copies of her new book after the show. Go to www.savagelovecast.com for more info and to order tickets. 206 302 2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to report a question or a comment for your future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 2064. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Angela Robinson on Twitter at RobinsonAngela and follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter, which you should probably be doing already, because I've told you to follow her so many times. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. The Savage LoveCast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Love Cast. Thanks for coming.